hello and welcome to, my goodness, it is week seven and the last week of Atheism for Lent. Uh, I am genuinely interested how many of you uh, got to this point, um, how many of you were able to do all the reflections. I know some of you were not just doing all the reflections, you were also doing all the supplemental material, so that's very impressive. You're the people who whenever you were at school and you were told to read something, you actually thought you had to do it, not like everybody else who kind of pretended. So some of you, because I was getting emails because a couple of links didn't work and stuff, so I knew the ones who were very dedicated are the ones that were writing to me. Um, I did get an email over the weekend, somebody looking for a link, which I will send if you're watching this. Um, so well done if you've got this far. Um, I know most of you have been doing at least a few reflections every week. And I, I, obviously my real desire is that over the course of this very intense seven weeks, I mean, you've done, I think, a high level university course worth of material um, that you felt the movement and the interplay between theism and atheism and that your sense of that both intellectually and at a heart level has been enriched in some way so you know just to go over the journey which i like to do at the start of each week uh we started off with the traditional arguments for the existence of god and the the three big philosophical arguments are the teleological the cosmological and the ontological and that was very helpful for me to go back to that stuff i haven't looked at that for 20 years really uh, in any serious way and it actually really helped clarify things for me and my position on them uh, which is Kant's Emmanuel Kant's position I thought is very convincing where if you remember I was saying the teleological argument like let's assume it works uh, it, it rests on the cosmological argument and so let's assume the cosmological argument works well, that rests upon the ontological argument. And so we have to ask ourselves, does the ontological argument work? And um, in a nutshell, I guess I would argue that if God exists, the ontological argument works, but <laughs> only in retrospect. So anyway, that was kind of the, the way I kind of thought about that. But we started off with the traditional arguments for the existence of a being, a supreme being in the world, uh, and then we went to kind of the opposite of that, that out of that belief comes the critique. And we did the standard critique. And so week one and two was very much there's theological theism and there's philosophical atheism. And then in week three, we went into theological atheism. So there's a dialectic move. So at first you've got, oh yeah, theology and theism, they're completely intertwined. Philosophy and atheism are often very intertwined and now we've got theological atheism with the mystics like someone like Meister Eckhart I pray therefore God rid me of God and you have this real interesting notion of the mystic saying every time I say God I say less than God there's something about that signifier that signifies an excess that cannot be grasped and then from that of course we did this other really interesting maneuver uh, where the, in week four, there were thinkers who were saying, you know, pretty much like, I, I don't disagree with you, but the predicates that you think are the stuff to put in the waste bin, they're the really interesting bit about religion. Um, and what we say about God, that's the stuff that's most fascinating. But the secret of theology is anthropology. So then that kind of, I think, added another interesting movement and another tributary or stream of, of, of rich material. And then after that, we got into, oh yeah, the kind of really the theological existentialists who, who said, yeah, no, faith is entirely grounded. It is material. Um, but in that materiality, there is something that, resists reduction, right? And some of those thinkers you were looking at could be called non-reductive materialists. They fully embrace the material world, uh, but there's something in 
and infused within the material world that they think that in a way uh, you cannot grasp but you cannot get rid of. And then that brought us into last week, uh, which is very contemporary thinkers and um, a real exploration again of negativity. Uh, negativity as in nihil or zero or nothing. Um, that there's something really positive about the negative. <laughs> um, there's something really... We're orientated as human beings toward that which we cannot grasp. And so, you know, you're introduced to some thinkers that I particularly enjoy. And that then brings us to the end. And this is not a full week even. You've got just a few readings or a few reflections before we hit Easter Sunday. And this is kind of like very key because the whole point of atheism for Lent is it is the valley that we're walking, you know, to get to the mountain. And the mountain top eventually is the moment where Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, this is a very interesting moment within the Gospels. And, you know, some it fits very neatly with uh, a certain philosophy, or a certain philosophy has, has come out of that idea. And not just that phrase, but that phrase kind of sums up something very powerful, which is, I feel alienated from myself, from others, from the environment, from God, from reality itself. And Tillich, if you remember that beautiful sermon, uh, he talks about sin. He says, that's what sin means. Uh, it's, and it's a very, very beautiful um, rendering of that term. Sin has nothing to do with ethics and being bad or do da 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 It is the sense that we are marked with the sense of separation. We are marked by the sense of alienation from each other, from ourselves. Uh, but the, the interesting thing about uh, my work is that grace, and I stand on the shoulders of someone like Paul Tillich, but is less about overcoming alienation, but realizing that alienation is also in God or in the absolute or in reality itself, right? Whichever language you want to use there's something about alienation that you can never overcome and in realizing that reality itself is riven with alienation you don't overcome your alienation but it robs it of its sting right it's it's robbed of its weight it becomes the yoke becomes light uh, so you don't get rid of your lack you realize that lack is within everything. Now, I'll give you very, some very practical examples of that because it can sound very theoretical. But, you know, at a very basic level, um, you can be jealous of your friends. You know, there's a, I was at a wedding, and you can go to weddings, and a wedding is a very romantic thing, and you see two people getting married, and they're talking about how much they love each other, and... It's so beautiful. And, you know, if, you, if things in your romantic life aren't great, it's very easy to feel kind of envious of that relationship and sit there and kind of like, you know, find yourself, you know, not being able to be happy for the happy couple. Uh, because in a way, we're caught up in a type of fantasy of that, oh, they got it. They, as one of my friends once said when it was, I was very young, he said, oh, like I, I crossed the finishing line, like as if, you know, the, the marriage was the finishing line and kind of then it was all going to be great. Very kind of naive thing to say, but, um, but that's, that's kind of thing that we can feel and especially with all of the beauty of, of, that a marriage can have, it can almost feel like, oh my goodness, they got it. They, they, they got rid of their alienation. Oh, they've become one. Um, and of course, there's this experience of, of often great love and great oneness. But then you could sit down and have a chat with, with them, even at their wedding day, and maybe they'll go, oh, this has been really tough. Um, actually, you know, we almost, we almost didn't do this. You know, like this, this week we've been fighting um, or, or not, but like, oh, but it's still been a, a tough time or don't know what it's going to be like. And what you realize is, oh, my fantasy that, that they 
it's perfect. It's not really true. They're struggling as well in sickness and in health and richer and in poorer. And I find myself, my, my envy diminishing when I realize that they are divided as well as me. Right? So, so much envy is that we have this fantasy that the other has what we don't have. But when we discover the other also has alienation within themselves, different from ourselves, maybe less intense, more intense, but it's part of being human, part of being a subject. You connect. And so what you connect on is not what's similar, but you connect because you both share a lack. You're unified by a, a form of alienation, which then becomes less alienating. By being in a community where you're all alienated, you paradoxically or dialectically overcome alienation. And that's what grace is for me, where we're gracious to each other, we accept and are accepted in our lack and in our experience of lack. But in that gracious encounter and a gracious acceptance, uh, that lack is, the debt is not paid, it's forgiven. Um, and the language there is really interesting. A debt is a lack, that, like a lack of money. Whenever you have a debt, you owe money. So it's not just you have no money, which is bad. You have negative money, so it's a negativity. You have negative money. And if someone pays the debt for you, they take that lack and they fill it, right? So they, you owe $1,000, someone pays it, the $1,000 becomes zero. So the nothing that is nothing becomes kind of like nothing paid. The, paid, the, 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 the lack is paid. But to forgive a debt isn't to pay it. It's to render the nothing nothing. So to forgive a debt is different from to pay a debt. You know, the year of Jubilee was not where everyone paid their debts, it's where all the debts were forgiven. So to forgive sin means not to fill the lack, to overcome the alienation, but, but to experience the, the loss of its sting, the loss of its weight. Um, what do I want to say about that? So that's, I guess, yeah, part of what you were exploring last week and into this week is this notion, oh yeah, I was saying like in terms of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that, that maybe alienation is not a contingent thing that we can overcome, which is the problem. Because as soon as you think your alienation is contingent, that you can overcome it, then you have to have a reason why you haven't overcome it. And that means you have to have a scapegoat. You have to have some group of people. Oh, it's the Republicans, it's the Democrats, it's the immigrants, it's the, it's the this, X, Y, or Z. It's, you know, whatever grouping um, needs to be blamed for the fact that we haven't overcome alienation. And then we're unified around our shared hatred of that group. And uh, that kind of temporarily makes us feel very good. Uh, but if alienation is woven into the very heart of, of reality itself and subjectivity itself, you can't scapegoat in the same way. You can still have people who you think are wrong. You can still enter into all of those debates and discussions. But there's a certain, that, that acceptance of alienation creates a different ground. And I would say a ground for, for transformation, for better transformation. Um, and yeah, that's, that gets complicated, but it's almost like we maybe live in a system where people are alienated, but we have the fantasy that when we retire, for example, if we can save up enough money and retire, then we'll be happy. And the problem with that is we save up the money, we retire, and then we're really bored and we die early, right? Because we don't even have... We didn't like our jobs, but the sacrifice and the work did give us something. And the fantasy of overcoming alienation, overcoming sacrifice, and you know, being able to retire by the beach is actually even, almost even worse. So the answer is not just to accept a crappy job, but is to kind of work out what would a system look like in which we all sacrifice? We all struggle together and we all benefit from the sacrifice, we all benefit from the struggle, and where we are able to directly enjoy 
the struggle. We are able to directly enjoy the fact that the kingdom of God is in the fighting for the kingdom of God, right? The, 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 the meaning of life is in the pursuit of that meaning. And um, can I say one more thing about this? I, this is a little bit off topic, but it's connected as well as um, I was talking to a friend of mine. We drove up home together and he went through a long period of depression and stopped going out. And he didn't go out for like 10, 15 years, really. And he, one of the reasons why he didn't was he just didn't believe that life was meaningful. He uh, didn't think that anything was meaningful and just shot himself down. And, you know, we've, while we were talking, it was talking about the idea that, that life might not be meaningful, but you can still open yourself up to, to meaning finding you, right? So this is what's called the real, is if you go out to the pub, nothing is likely gonna happen. Not going to meet anybody, make new friends or anything like that. You'll just go, you'll have a good time, you'll have a drink, or you go to a coffee shop, or you go to an art gallery. You know, nothing much is likely going to happen. But if you do that a thousand times, something might interestingly happen. You might encounter a new friend. You might encounter a piece of art that changes you. You might have an experience. You might meet someone who becomes very significant in your life, either as a partner or as a friend. That's called the real. The real is kind of like the something that happens in the midst of normality that you could never have predicted. You can't predict it. You can't plan for it. The more you try to do that, the more you kind of um, get worked up and anxious and whatever. But you don't shut yourself down from it either. Somehow we try to remain open to the real erupting in our lives, to something happening. And... Uh, those things only happen a few times. This was on my mind because my friend Phil and Myrid, who were getting married, they met in an art gallery in Belfast, and Myrid needed to borrow 20p for, I think, her car maybe, and they were the only two people in the gallery, and he lent her 20p, and, you know, that ended up, we're at the wedding, right? Um, that little event happened those little events that completely reconfigure your life that's what the real is the real is not something that's great that happens or terrible that happens it's it's in something happens that that you could never have predicted that's apocalyptic um and there's something about life in which we try to remain open to the apocalyptic and that is very connected to the faith uh and that especially john caputo last week He's very, he writes very beautifully about faith as an openness to the apocalyptic event, to the incoming of something that can change everything. So God is not you know, some, something that you worship or you, you think about as such. You can do all of that. But for Caputo, God and your, your kind of love of God is reflected in this radical openness to the world and a radical openness to the other. And of course, Richard Boothby's about that, is that there's something about faith that is love, love of your enemy, of a radical openness that can create novelty, can create spontaneity, can create something new. And the great thing about this is you don't have to believe anything. That's what I was saying to my friend. It's like, it's like you may not believe in meaning, but if you try to go out into the world, meaning might find you. And that's all you have to be open to. Uh, there's a line in the John Wick movie uh, where John Wick goes to a chapel and this other guy who's a friend, an enemy, a frenemy, uh, says to him, why are you here? And he says, well, I'm here to talk to my wife, his wife who died. And uh, he says, well, do you think she can hear you? And he says, no. And the guy says, well, why are you here? And John Wick says, well, I could be wrong. All right. So it's like, it's like, okay, I don't believe she can hear me. I don't believe it, but I could be wrong. Like I'm open to something. That's kind of the Caputian faith. Is that as kind of openness to you? Do I believe life is meaningful? No. Well, then why are you going out? Why are you doing art? Why are you going to that painting class? Why are you listening to this talk? Well, I could be wrong. You know, meaning might find me.
that's that's that radical openness and that does connect with the last few reflections that you're going to encounter um a lot of the work i'm going to be doing this year with you guys if you kind of keep with me is looking at the connection between desire and faith desire language and faith actually um and that comes up a little bit this week where desire is for something you do not have right we desire what we do not have but there's a particular type of desire that is sparked off by something you encounter so a piece of art for example you look at it if it's a piece of art that speaks to you or a piece of music that speaks to you it's there you can consume it with your hearing or with your eye eyes but it also evokes something that you cannot hear or you cannot see so desire kind of it evokes something uh so desire is connected to lack to negativity but which is connected to this idea of faith and god is in a sense a type of desire that is never satisfied except in its ongoing desire there's a satisfaction in the dissatisfaction itself and so this week the first reading you'll get or the first reflection sorry is a piece of music by Padre Gotuma uh, called Maranatha that beautifully I think captures this having and not having this this belonging and not belonging this feeling of being at home in homelessness and it's a hymn this part of an album called hymns to swear by uh, a lot of you will know it because I've used it before but it's a beautiful album that really I think gets to the heart of of faith as this uh tarrying with the negative um in this positive kind of way and then the next three are from a documentary that I presented I'm a part of called a guide to making love and it's called a guide to making love because it's a guide to how you make desire how you des- how you get desire going how you create desire and if you remember i was talking about i think it was last week particularly with richard boothby that if you think of love as precisely an orientation to what you cannot grasp in the other not what you can right that's that's something else and it's it's lovely to encounter somebody who you know you like their identity their various identities you like that and they remind you of other people you know or yourself but that radical encounter with someone else who is radically other and where you start to make a space or a harbor in your own life for their mystery for the uncanny dimension of their desire even though it's kind of terrifying at times right only the the people who you love the most can be the ones who surprise you the most and hurt you the most but you kind of are open to that dimension of them and they with you and somehow if if that happens mutually there's something about love so love is that orientation towards the 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 uncanny mystery the das ding the void of the other um Oh yeah, so the the guide to making love is about how do we open that space up. So in the first day after after Podrick, there is a little introduction to that notion of desire followed by a short film called Alone, uh set in Ireland. Uh and it's about exploring how we're all unified by lack. Something I do want to mention on that by the way is that it's not simply that you might look at somebody else and think oh they lack the lack right they have it all right which we do we often look at other people but often it's a version of ourselves and often we have in our heads an alternative world where we could have been whole and complete so there are all these alternative universes and you may come to terms with the fact that there's something lacking in your current life but the fantasy that there is a version of you that could have been happy is what makes you depressed that's what holds you back that's what just kind of like makes it difficult to get up in the morning makes it difficult to go out into the world so the experience of realizing that there is division in everything is also realizing that there is division in all those alternative universes 
right? There might be a universe where you might have been slightly happier or sadder or whatever, but there's no universe where you would not have been alienated. And um, the more you fantasize about something that would have really worked, the more likely that would not have worked <laughs> because there was too much freight, too much expectation in it. And so the reflections this week and the first one of the guides to making love is, is saying that, that there's something freeing and beautiful about experiencing that alienation within ourselves and realizing that that is reflected in other people. So that's what the first one is about. The second day, um, I kind of explore that. So you've got the short film. The, the, the next day is a reflection on that film. And then the last one is where I try to connect that with the crucifixion uh, through a parable. Uh, and this notion that that there is something so freeing when we realize that we are all gathered together around a shared loss, and that loss is in the divine itself. And that might be the meaning of salvation. So the very last reflection actually ends with the idea of what is what is salvation. <laughs> and I think that might be the salvatory move. So if salvation is... You know, if eternal life doesn't mean just life that goes on forever, right? And of course it doesn't mean that. Like, um, if eternal life was just more of the same, then we'd all be begging for death, right? Heaven would be just millions of people wanting eventually for it all to end, right? Uh, it's a very theological idea that eternal life means something, a transformation in the very texture of your life right now, not just the ongoing of your life. So Nietzsche once... Um, told the parable of a king, King Midas, who captured a demon and forced the demon to tell him the secret of happiness. And the demon laughed and said, why do you ask? You can't have it. The secret of happiness is to never have been born. Uh, but if you can't have that, then die quickly. Right? And so, of course, if you don't like your life, then having more of it is not good. There has to be a change in the very texture of our lives that makes life worth living. And if that's the case, then maybe there's something in being part of a communion of people in which we're all able to make space for that alienation that might make a healthy community and make an experience of life that is really worth living. And that is a type of, um, that gives us a type of density uh, and texture and depth to life uh, that, that makes it not a burden, but makes it a joy and makes it feel like a privilege that we are participating in this thing called life together. Okay, so that's this week's reflections. Um, as I say, Padre Gutuma, who... Uh, you know, a, a lot of you know who he is, but I think his, his poetry and his music really get to the heart of a theological atheism. Right? This is where they really come together, I think, in a very deep way. And how desire, faith might be a form of openness to desire and openness to the apocalyptic and openness to an eternal uh, real or possibility. Um, that is enriching and life-giving and might be uh, help us get to the heart of what East Good, of Good Friday is and what Easter Sunday is, the message that's in that, and might kind of like get us to the heart of what it means to uh, imagine a different way of being together. Okay, let's have a look. Okay, we've got lots of comments, questions. Doo -doo -doo. Oh, here's a comment. Oh, yeah, this is my third try in Atheism for Lent. This is from Courtney. And I finally made it past week two. <laughs> Brilliant. Caught up now after COVID and other illness. Oh, sorry. And excited to wrap up with everyone this week. Oh, that's really nice. So you made it past week two. Did you make it all the way to week seven? It sounds like you did. Um, well done. Uh, Alison, I missed... Uh, Martin Heidegger in Atheism for Lent Material. 
oh, I've never actually, have I, so yeah, I've never used Martin Heidegger, but Heidegger would be a good one. So anyway, sorry, I missed Martin Heidegger and Atheism for Lent material. My curiosity took me to a fun 20, I know what you're going to be talking about, yeah, 2010 documentary, Being in the World. I know the guy who made that documentary, Tao Rossellini. I was at a party years ago in LA, sitting beside this very cool guy. We got talking. And he said, oh yeah, I directed this documentary. And I was like, and we talked, he's like, that's being in the world. And he's like, how do you know that? Because it's a very small documentary. Like, I love that documentary, that's brilliant. So yes, anyway, sorry. Um, uh, being in the world. Peter, do you have material you held back that you recommend? Well, first of all, lots of material I held back. It's always hard to choose what to do. Now, I wouldn't want anybody to feel that, oh my goodness, there's so much, like, I, there's so much in what we did in 40 days, but yeah, Heidegger would be a good one to have, although he's a very, very difficult thinker. But that documentary's great, and maybe I should have that documentary in next year. So it's called Being in the World. It's probably quite hard to find, although the age of the internet, it won't be hard to find. Um, definitely, definitely worth watching. Um, yeah, who else then? If you're asking material that I didn't include that I would like to have included. Is there anything um, that comes to mind? Heidegger is a good one. Uh, I don't know. I have to have a think. Um, you know, I, I would like to somehow include Hegel and Lacan, but it's so hard to find kind of something that's easy, that, that's really rich and easily digestible. Um, if anything, and I know Marianne said about this as well, and I, I, I agree with, uh, is that I want maybe next year, I will always want to get the balance right between the intellectual and the artistic. And uh, I always, you know, I veer towards the intellectual a little bit, but I'm always trying to find that mix. So next year I would like to maybe bring in a few more, not that much more, but a few more pieces of art, pieces of music, uh, short films. You're getting a short film and a piece of music this week, but maybe two reflections or three reflections a week of that kind. Um, so I'll try to introduce that. But Alison, that's a great, Tao Rossellini, that's a great recommendation. Um, oh, Ruby says, the wedding day is the illusion, marriage is reality. <laughs> maybe we need... We still need the illusion to get us to reality. Oh, yes. Well, one, absolutely, that's a beautiful comment. And I did want to say this. I think it's related, maybe not. But it's an example that Richard Boothby uses about the real, which I think because it's a very complex idea, the real, but you can make sense of it. One of the examples he uses is that we will say to each other, how are you doing? So how are you? Are uh, you having a good day? And we all reply, oh, yeah, doing good. Yep, it's a great day, right? So that is part of the social glue. Nobody answers it really, right? We just go, oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. Uh, and then Boothby says, well, that is a type of illusion. And it's a type of falsity, but it's a necessary one. Like, so that's how society runs. That, this, um, that civility is, is, connects us. But 999 times... You ask that question, the person says, oh, I'm doing fine. But one time out of a thousand, the person maybe sheds a tear and says, to be honest, I'm at the end of my rope. And they break the convention. And that allows the possibility of something to happen. Now, if that happened every time, you, you couldn't have it, right? But, it, but the convention allows the possibility of something else happening. Um, I think that's a little bit different from what you're saying. Actually, I want to comment what you're saying, but I wanted to mention that of, of like, we go every week to the pub and we see our same friends and nothing happens 900 times, but 901, something happens. The convention allows a moment where something breaks, but that's a kind of illusion. Like it's a kind of, it's a kind of, and, and there are people and my friend who I drove home with is one of them who, um, you know, Lacan famously said the non-duped air, uh, as an ERR, the non-duped air, which in French sounds like the name of the father. And he's playing with this idea that for some people, 
they're not duped by these things we do. And my friend actually mentioned how at the wedding, everybody waits until someone's, everyone's got the food in front of them. And he was like, why do we do that? Why do we not just start eating, right? Um, and I was saying the non-duped air, like that is a good question. But when you ask that question, which he did at the dinner table, it caused a little bit of tension as we talked about it because it's like he's not duped by the civility of like nobody eats until, until you know, everybody's got their meal in front of them. Uh, but by not being duped, he airs. He make, he, in kind of, it causes a bit of a problem. So the non-duped air, uh, and it's connected with psychosis actually, psychotic people are not duped. When a psychotic person sees a police officer, they don't see a, a representation of the law. They see a guy in a suit, right, in a, in a uniform. But the non-duped air, because they only see a 20-year-old in an outfit, they don't give deference. And by not giving deference, they're more likely to get arrested and get into trouble, right? Um, so there's something about the illusion, which is precisely the frame out of which the real can happen. And so, yeah, Ruby, I, I just love that, that idea that I, it's, it's very wrong for us to disparage what we might call illusion or the imaginary or the image. It's absolutely necessary uh, because out of that erupts something. Um, Courtney says, can you speak to the hows of remaining open to the real? Oh yeah, embracing lack, welcoming instead of trying to solve contradiction. I don't want to be, I don't want a manual, yes, <laughs> but I do feel hungry for the practicals. Yes, yeah. And this is where living, having space with others uh, would, is, is so necessary. That's why I believe in church. That's why I'm an institutionalist even though I don't go to church and we do, we're not currently, I'm not currently doing what I would call a communion. Um, I think we need to just be around other people who are on this journey with us. And as I say, in the same way that Eucharist is a meal around a shared lack, there's something about being around people who can be open to that. An example I used to use, it was, it was a jokey example, but when I used to write books and I knew Rob Bell and, um, I would say about how, like, you know, I was, uh, you know, so happy for him when he was selling a hundred thousand copies, and I was selling, you know, a few thousand copies, you know, like, and how, like, you know, you, you every time a friend succeeds, a part of you dies. I kind of can't remember who said that, uh, Gore Vidal, maybe, but it's like uh, that. There's a certain sense in which, oh, you know, whenever you see the other person, you kind of get envious until I get to know Rob and realize that oh, he's got just as many difficulties as I do, right? And it's at that moment of lack where we're able to talk like that over a coffee that we really connect, where I go, oh, yeah, selling 100,000 books doesn't, isn't really that any better, you know? And so having a community where we are able to make space for those conversations and or even just to experience art, and sermons and parables that that draw us into that is so vitally important um, because everything else in the world is kind of give, giving us the opposite uh, and, and kind of evoking our envy and our scapegoating desires. Uh, so that space where once a week we can kind of like have something else, so that's very important to me. And um, I guess it's like, how do we... And who, who are your friends, the people who you know, to, to maybe have a little you know, monthly get-together where you is, you know, I don't know, go for coffee and talk about your weekend. But you almost put little protocols in and say, you know, we're really going to try to be honest. And, of course, the idea which Ruby brings up is you don't want to live like that every day of the week, right? You can't. You almost want the deserts and the oasis, just, just those moments in life that, that keep you open. Um, again, that's why I like the idea of church is like once a week you have this R in your life where you encounter negativity, the lack, that space. Um, and that's not what most churches are, but that's what my ideal of church is. Uh, there's a parable that I like. I'll tell you a parable. You've probably heard me say it, but or it's a little Irish story about this competition where you're, they have to build a sheep pen. You're given a certain amount of material 24 hours the person who builds the biggest sheep pen wins the prize and the first person paddy englishman 
builds a sheep pen that can fit 50 sheep. And then there's the Paddy Scotsman, and uh, they build a pen that can fill 100 sheep. And then it's the Paddy Irishman, Seamus, and he doesn't do anything for most of the time. And then he realizes he's run out of time, so he just gets four pieces of wood, and he stands, he puts one in front of him, one at either side, one behind him, and he's starting to paint. And the judges look and they laugh and they go, listen, Seamus, you couldn't fit one sheep into that pen. And Seamus looks at them and says, no, I'm not standing in the pen. You're standing in the pen. Right? And that for me is the image of church, is that people look at the church and they think, oh, you're standing in the sacred. That's the place where you think you've got wholeness and completeness and you meet God and everything's going to be fixed. And actually the paratheological thing is, no, 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 that's the outside, right? You're standing in the sacred. You're standing in the world where constantly through magazines and movies, you're being told to be whole and complete. You're being told that you can have everything if you consume the right commodities, do the right psychedelics, do the right fitness, have the right amount of money. And actually the, the profane temple, the profane temple of paratheology is for one, for one hour a week, you, you experience escape from that saturation in pure positivity. Uh, so yeah, anyway, that's, that's what we need. <laughs> we need that. We need, we need to be standing on the outside of the sheep pen. And that's what the profane temple of paratheology is designed to, to do. Um, anyway, but that's not very practical, but thank you for allowing me to tell that parable. Um, oh yes. Uh, Celeste, is that Celeste? Question, I have friends who see this acceptance of lack as a very negative word or place to overcome, uh, a hopeless place, yes. They desire a wholeness as ground. Is there a signifier that softens the language? Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's where context is important. Like a lot of this is art. Um, I, I love using harsh words in the context that I usually am doing because what, what I like to do is say something like talk about original sin, which has got very negative connotations. So it kind of sometimes gets people to go, what? And then reinterpret it in a way that makes them go, oh, whoa, actually, I quite like the way you're using that term. So that's, that's a strategy that I like, but it's not the only strategy at all. It's just one that I enjoy. But it's, it's the strategy of the, of the parable or even the joke. Because a joke often gets you because you think one thing and then it throws you into a counter narrative. So that's why I use strong language. Um, that's even calling the podcast the fundamentalists is kind of to do that in a way to take a word that's negative and do something with it. But also often if you do that too much, the person shuts down. Like it's that art of what is, what is enough to disturb and disrupt somebody, that they'll have an interest, but not so much that it shuts them down, right? That's the art, and, and every person's a wee bit different. So yeah, like Atheism for Lent is a great example, the title is a great example of, I'm trying with that title, it's my favorite title of anything I do. Um, and I, I took it from Merrill Westphal, I think it's a subtitle of, of, of his book, Suspicion and Faith, but what I like about it is, at its best, it's disruptive. The first time you hear is like atheism and Lent, like that's an opposite, that's weird. But also it's like, oh, atheism is about giving something up and giving up God. There's a little bit of a humor there or whatever. And there's, the, the desire is that there's enough that a person will go, what is that? And they'll look into it. But the truth is, for some people, that term is just off-putting. It's just off-putting. So it's kind of, of course, it's not, it can't be universally done. Um, and then maybe for some people, oh, it's, just, it's just boring. It doesn't work. Uh, so for me, it's like I'm trying to find terminology that, that does the disruption enough that not, not so much that it switches off. So in psychoanalysis, one of my analyst friends talks about almost kind of the right level of anxiety is that, it's, you can't really do psychoanalysis with someone who's just fallen in love or they've just got their new job and everything's going great, right? Um, you have to have a certain amount of difficulty. But if it's too much, you can't really do it. There's a, 
you try to create a safe space for unsafety, for, for the right level of anxiety that allows for some sort of change. That's the art. And so in your context, that's the question. Okay, what is it? And so, for example, in a very conservative setting, um, saying something like, uh, well, yeah, what, what would be disturbing in a, in a very conservative church would not be disturbing in a progressive church? What would be disturbing in a progressive church? So, for example, uh, you know, conservatives, like churches, conservatives and low church, often they don't mind messing around with the liturgy at all. They can do things and they can mess around with stuff. Whereas in a progressive church, you move the altar two feet to the right, it might cause a lot of stress. So, but then belief in the progressive church, questioning doesn't create any form of disturbance, whereas questioning in a conservative setting might be a very disturbing thing. So you're kind of finding what in, in your context, what is the what is the little bit of grit that will bring a little bit of disturbance? And I can't, because I don't know your context, know exactly what that would look like, but you're bringing up a great point, which is that's, that's, the, that's the biting point that you're trying to find. Um, and sometimes lack is, a, is too strong a word, negativity. As I say, I quite like it because as long as I know I've got a captive audience for an hour, and where if I go like someone's watching my seminar because for whatever reason. So if I start off and say, you know, the world is too positive, right? Uh, we're tyrannized by happiness. Uh, we're, 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 we're oppressed by certainty. That, if I know that I've got them for 45 minutes, I know that that will hopefully be enough for them to go, what? And then I have 45 minutes to unpack it. But that's only because I think I, for most people, if they're watching the seminar, I've got them for 45 minutes. Anyway, so yeah, um, maybe we should do some practical stuff about that sometime. How do we do this in our own contexts, in our own environments? Um, Derek says, uh, question, comment, Boothby's talk on Das Ding and otherness struck me as very similar to Timothy Morton's notion of the strange stranger, which sort of pushes against our categorization of life. Can you comment on the overlap or lack thereof of the ideas? You know, I don't think I know Timothy Morton. Um, notion of the strange stranger. That sounds very like a thinker I do know. And like, um, he's an Irish guy, Richard. Uh, is it another Richard? Oh, who wrote about the stranger. Oh, his name just escapes me. I even studied under him briefly. Um, and coming back to, I think it was Alison, he said, of who would I like to include that I didn't? This is somebody I'd like to include. Uh, if anybody can know who I'm talking about, Irish philosopher wrote a book, a book on monsters, I think. On, uh, it'll come back to me. But yeah, no, I don't know Timothy Morton's work, so can't comment on that. But I maybe worth checking out and I'll definitely check it out. Um, and I wish I could remember, he wrote a book called Anatheism, the guy that I'm thinking of. So if you want to find out who I'm thinking of, look up Anatheism. Um, his work very much is in this space. He's a more confessional Christians, a little tiny bit more, you know, so, so the Anatheism, it's very much in this, in this kind of area. Uh, Celeste, can you speak of the difference between community and communion? Yes, um, I'm, I'm really liking this distinction and I want to do a lot more about it. The, w the way I use these terms, and I think I, I think I have justification for it, but maybe not as much as I think, but I, I, ar I would argue that community is formed around shared beliefs, shared identity, shared enemies. So a shared goals. So what you have with a community, and none of that's bad. In fact, we need all of that. Like that's all kind of good stuff. But a community is very much, yes, we, you know, we have the same beliefs. Uh, say we have the same identity. We have or the, and or the same enemy and or the same goal. Whereas a communion, uh, the, way I, the reason why I use the word communion is because communion is connected to Eucharist. The Eucharist is connected to a group of people who are unified by a shared loss, the death of God, right? So a communion is where people are 
linked together by an embrace of and a realization of the shared lack that is part of being human. Now that is central, and this is why I mentioned earlier that I really want to look at the connection between desire, language, and faith. Um, we've done that a little bit already, but I want to go deeper into that because all of those are about a kind of, they're all infused with lack. Desire, as I said, is infused with something that you get and don't get. Uh, language is misses, always misses the mark, but it doesn't completely miss the mark. Language both communicates and miscommunicates at the same time. The reason why I continue to do seminars and will continue to do them probably till I die is because I never quite say what I want to say. There's always something that's missed. But what's missed is kind of generated by the seminars themselves. Just like when you, when you do pottery and you create a vase, the, the lack, which is the gap within the vase, is, is shaped by the, the pot. So you're shaping nothingness. Architecture is like that as well. Architecture is a way to shape nothingness. And you can shape it in ways that feel oppressive or feel open. And so architects basically are molding empty space. So something about desire that is about lack, something about language that is about lack, and something about faith that is about lack. Uh, oh, and what was the question? I'm sorry. Oh, yes. Um, and communion. Yes, communion is then a group of people who are through liturgy and art and and communication are, are joined together by that. And this is why I think AA offers a really interesting innovation within the religious world, even though AA, it's interesting because AA is not a Christian organization as such, but also it is, right? Because it was, and it was set up by conservative Christian or whatever, and it's not a church. But again, I want to go, but yeah, paradoxically, it kind of is. But what I mean by it being a church is simply that what unifies people in AA is not how much they make, what their uh, identities are. What they share is a certain shape of lack, which is the damage that is done by alcohol and the the bad relations, all of the difficulties that, that alcoholism has produced in their lives. So it's a kind of shared trauma. That's what unifies them. So in AA, you can have somebody who's a multimillionaire besides someone who has got like a you know low-paying job. And you can have people who are very different educational places all brought together because of this shared trauma, and trauma being a shared kind of lack. And in AA, what happens is you don't overcome the lack but through grace, you accept that you're all alcoholics. Go, yeah, my name's Pete, I'm an alcoholic. You all say that. And you make space for that lack. And in, in being able to accept that grace and make that space, the lack becomes no longer destructive. And then the 12 steps are kind of ways in which you can practically, you know, uh, find ways to live beyond the alcoholism but uh, but i talk about step zero and step zero for me is grace which is the step that's not talked about in aa explicitly but it's lived out which is you're in a circle of people who accept you and eventually you can accept that you're accepted so you might go to aa for and that i've never been to aa but this is what i imagine i know it's often steel donuts and bad coffee which is even better right is that but you can sit there for six months not say anything and you'll be welcomed, you'll be accepted. But eventually, you'll maybe say your name and say, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. You'll admit the truth to yourself. You're not changing it, you're admitting it. And it's a very, very important difference is we often run around thinking, oh, denying, like the, 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 the defense mechanism of alcoholism is often denial. Oh, I'm not an alcoholic. I could give up alcohol anytime I want, et cetera, et cetera. And only when you accept grace, can you admit the truth? The truth that you kind of already know, but you've repressed and you go, okay, I can admit this. But you can admit it because you're in a room that saturated you with grace because they're going like, we're all alienated as well, right? So that's the 
Christ crucified thing. It's like, it's not that you're in a room of people who accept you. They're all perfect. And they're, none of them are alcoholics, but they accept you, right? No, no, no. It's like, no, we're all alienated from ourselves. We're all wounded, right? And you accept their acceptance. And in accepting their acceptance, you're able to say, not overcome the trauma, but make space for it and accept that lack and move forward. So communion for me is a radical form of that. That's not to do with alcohol. It's to do with, because you can have, obviously you've got various forms of AA for drugs or for sex or for alcohol. You've got all sorts of ones. This is kind of AA for the ultimate lack, which is the lack that we all are, whether we're an alcoholic or not, that we're all marked by a lack. And so you don't need to go to sex anonymous, drugs anonymous, alcoholics anonymous, but but you go to this space where the communion is, but we are all joined by what's called castration in psychoanalysis, but we're all marked by death. Um, I've, you may have heard me, I, I talked about this at Wake, where I, I kind of, I'm playing with this idea where I go like, you know, I believe in life after death. And I do this, I believe in life after death, and I believe I can prove that there is life after death. But psychoanalytically, I say, because we are the evidence, there is something about death or lack that we are marked by from the very beginning. And life comes out of that castration. Life comes out of that death, that loss. That's a psychoanalytic idea. So there is life after death, and this is it. <laughs> this is it right now. Um, and we're all marked by that death. And we all have to make some space for that death. That's what, that's what a communion is. Uh, and we also need community. I mean, C.S. Lewis said it very well. He said, like, there's a type of friend who is like you. Whenever you meet them, it's like you're meeting yourself. They like the same music as you. They like the same books as you. They like the same TV shows as you. And he goes, and that's beautiful, that, that friendship of the person who is just like you. And then he says, and then there's the friendship of the person who isn't, who you fight with, who thinks differently from you, who's frustrating, who is kind of other to you. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis says, that's even, that's even better. Um, that's kind of com community is the, the beauty of the people who are like you. But communion is, you're not like me at all. So what do we share? Oh, we share that we're not like ourselves either. We share that we're all marked by lack. Um, oh, there's lots of, this is very, this is fun. Because um, this is the last one, I'm taking my time. You can go away, come back. This is all recorded. Uh, uh, Courtney says you didn't make it all the way. Now, very good. I almost think like, I mean, I, it's just a lot. It's a lot. I kind of go like I'm asking a lot from people. <laughs> um, question, can you tell us your top three favorite paintings? Haha, <laughs> Courtney, that's very interesting. Um, I shared one with you, obviously. Um, I love Barnett Newman, but actually it's not even Barnett Newman as a whole. It's the Stations of the Cross, and it's not even the Stations of the Cross. It's the, particularly that first Station of the Cross. Um, I really, really like. Uh, uh, what else do I really like? I mean, I love the work of Anselm Kiefer. Um, Anselm Kiefer's work is very powerful and emotional. And I've never seen his stuff in real life. I talked to my artist friend, Johnny McEwen, who saw Anselm Kiefer's work in real life, and he had an emotional experience with it. It's, it's very, there's something very powerful about it, but I think I'd need to see it in person, but I love Anselm Kiefer. And he has a painting called, I think it's called Existence Essence. And it's a, it's a, it's an incredible landscape painting, like mountainous landscape. And there's something about it that is, uh, is, is absolutely stunning. And then also, um, I like some of the German expressionists. Um, there's a guy, What's his name? I saw his work once. Um, Joseph. Oh, can't think of the German expressionist that that I saw in the Ulster Museum once. But is it a, also, by the way, I mean, my probably my most powerful artistic experience was with Rothko, Mark Rothko, uh, the chapel, the Rothko Chapel in Houston, Texas is profoundly beautiful, very emotional. And the Rothko room in the Tate Modern 
Like those are two incredible. Like Rothko's become so popular for a while. You know, you could buy all those prints in IKEA and stuff, and you kind of he became such a a piece a piece. You know, you just stick on your wall that you didn't realize that when whenever you're in the room with Rothko pieces, you can really feel something. So yeah, okay, I'll say that then. Barnett Newman, uh, Anselm Kiefer, Mark Rothko, but particularly the Rothko Chapel, um, and. Barn and Newman Stations of the Cross um, and Ansel and Kiefer is generally very good. Uh, question from Midnight Ruminations. Uh, how do we differentiate between embracing the lack and embracing a pessimistic realism? Okay, yeah. I, f I find myself sometimes getting stuck in the absence rather than what it produces. Yeah, um, you know, this is what, I think this is what I'm trying to kind of unpick with the conversation I had with my friend uh, in the car where he went through a period, you know, and still to many extent, much extent he's still in that, that, that period of deep depression, pessimism that really stopped him from doing anything. And when we were talking in the car, saying that it's, it's this, it's, it's this openness to an apocalyptic rupture that is what I talk about by embracing the lack. It's so weirdly, it's not the pessimism. It's not that oh, things don't mean anything, right? Like whenever Lacan uses the word real, the real, what he's talking about is some philosophers use the word event. It's like, um, it's like, as I say, it's like almost like I could say to my friend, like, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter. You don't believe anything, right? Yeah, you have, you have no meaning in your life, but all you have to do and it's still very difficult. So this is why I say all you have to do is incredibly profoundly difficult sometimes is try to be open to meaning finding you. You don't have to believe in meaning. You can, you can give up, you can give over to pessimism completely. You can give over to the darkness, which we all do sometimes and be enveloped by it. All faith is doing, faith is that little part of you that is, remaining open to the possibility that while you have no meaning, meaning might find you. And that might mean just trying to be open to going out uh, to see friends when you don't want to, um, or go to an art gallery or a coffee shop and, and do certain things and knowing that 99 times out of 100, nothing will happen, but somehow keeping the flicker of a possibility alive that something might rupture and reconfigure you and then redeem the past. This is the beautiful thing. The past can be redeemed. When an event like that happens, Kierkegaard talks about like, the past becomes like an Old Testament prophecy. It was a waiting. It was a John the Baptist for the moment that things changed. So that 15 years where you felt you did nothing, suddenly it's like, ah, but... Without that, I wouldn't have had this moment. So the lack is not so much this kind of idea of, oh, there's no meaning. The lack is almost like the rupture that happens in our lives that allows something. And, and I think conversion is a form of that because conversion for me is not when you add anything to your life. Conversion is the moment in which something ruptures you and everything is set on a new path. New possibilities erupt. But the conversion is not an addition, it's a subtraction. You're subtracted briefly from your life. You're kind of, things fall away, new possibilities open up. And so, yeah, so that my advice, my advice to my friend in the car, so and my advice to myself and to you, and I get this from Richard Boothby a little bit, he gives me hope, is because I think Richard Boothby would say this, is, um, is that, that the call of faith is the courage, and Tillich uses the word courage, which I like the courage to be, but it's the courage to try to remain open to the other. And, not, and the other as other people, but also the other as in just the otherness of life, the possibilities of something happening, somehow doing that. And if you're alive, you have that flicker. That's key, and Viktor Frankl talks about that, that like, and he, he would sometimes say to a client and analyze and, why have you not killed yourself? Because it's going like, if you're alive, 
there's something in you that's keeping you going. And it's not that we have to give you a reason. The reason is there. It's just we haven't found it. It might be dug under and we have to dig and dig and dig. But there is a flicker of something that is keeping you going, even if it's so tiny. And all you have to do is try to nurture that flicker and find people who can nurture that flicker and get your desire moving again, desire put, get it, get it working again. And I think that's what openness to the lack is. That's what faith, that's part of what faith means. Um, but it's very difficult. But say, I love that Viktor Frankl thing is if you're alive, it's there. And it might just be very, because I went through a period of deep depression and I remember that the problem with depression is you don't desire. You basically just don't desire at all. You just, food is fuel, sleep is just what you do. Like nothing means anything. But there was enough of something happening. And by, by, by fanning that, finding that and fanning it, my desire eventually began to start operating again. And uh, yeah, so that's what I mean by, in a sense, open to the lack is almost open to an apocalyptic event where meaning can find you. And where, say, you may still believe that life has no meaning, but you cannot help but experience it as being meaningful. Um, ah, yes, of course, he says, yes, yes to this community of the real, because that's what that says, the community of the real. I like, uh, I was playing around with this idea of a collective of the contradiction. You know, that's it's quite, quite a nice term. Um, uh, let's see. Richard Carney, thank you, Courtney. I knew somebody would do that. Richard Carney was the, the person I was talking about, anatheism. And uh, yeah, it's really worth, he's a lovely guy as well. And um, it's a book really worth reading. Um, and Derek says, yes, uh, I've read a few books by Morton, but I think Strange Stranger is uh, primarily explored in, in the ecological thought, the ecological thought, or possibly humankind. Uh, both are short books, and so recommended. Thank you. Um, and the last question then uh, from Derek, yes. Do you have thoughts on Black Square by Malevich? Uh, uh, to me, it's powerful in relation to negative theism. Yeah, Derek, that is a great painting. Um, and that's a great example of this. I think Shizek has written well on that Black Square. So if those of you who know it, it's basically a Black Square. Uh, I think it's surrounded by white and in a, a frame and very, very simple, but very profound. Again, sometimes you have to see these things in real life to really sometimes feel them. Um, uh, so, yes, I mean, I guess that's similar in line to Rothko and Newman. Like there's something in that abstract art that I really resonate with that is about negativity, that is about... Um, pure form over content. So I don't know if I have anything profound to say. I, I could try and pretend to, but I, I wish I did, because I did reflect on it once. I think I even did a talk on it once, but um, I would, if if you're trying to connect with what I'm saying, it's like Slavio Shizek wrote something very good on it. But yeah, no, Derek, that's a, that's a great painting um, uh, that kind of somehow explores this idea of a pure, a pure negativity.